on today's episode of May the Record Reflect. The story of your client's case. Overcoming the bane of writer's block. Breaking up with your notes. Crafting your opening statement. Taking care of yourself at trial. These are today's topics for a special two-part episode celebrating Nita's 50th anniversary year. I'm Marcy Buckmelter, and welcome to May the Record Reflect. Twenty twenty one marks fifty years of the National Institute for Trial Advocacy as the nation's go to gold standard in all things advocacy. Here on the podcast, we wanted to celebrate this year long occasion with our gift to you fifty trial tips for each of Nita's fifty years. A few weeks ago, I issued a clarion call to our teaching faculty, program directors, authors, and members of our board of trustees to help me in this mission. And boy, did they deliver. I'll be spending the next two episodes of the podcast sharing their trial tips. And today we will cover the first 25 with the second set of trial tips airing in March. The first topic is the story of your case. How do you determine what it is? And then how do you tell it to the greatest effect for your client? So I've got four tips. And the first one comes from one of our trustees emeritus, Joe Bankoff. I've never liked the idea of figuring out your story because it sounds to a jury like it's just another story. I'd rather have them understand what's this case really all about? And in getting to that point, you need to focus on the fact that the theme or the overall structure of the case really has to be understood like a song. There's a melody, and that's the theme. And then there are a bunch of words. But people won't remember the words if they don't like the melody and have some reason to connect it. So I think when you're looking around, understand that while you've lived in the sea of facts for several years, This is the first and only time the jury is going to hear it. So figure out what are the three most important points that the jury needs to understand and believe for you to get your your case across. They're supported by a lot of facts, but they're boiled down. There can't be more than three because that's all people are going to ever remember. And then figure out how you can help the jury tie those three points together with the witnesses as you're going to present them and outline as best you can how that all fits together to come back to the main theme you're trying to establish. When you figure out out of that sea of facts, what's the melody and what are the words, you'll have your story. Brad Peterson's tip mentions Anita founding member a gentleman who was part of the group that gathered at the kitchen table 50 years ago to form NIDA and imagine what it could be. Let's listen. I was fortunate that my first job after law school was clerking for a judge who had helped found NIDA. And Judge Jim Kerrigan told all of us who clerked for him that you always have to be the fairest guy in the courtroom. So when you were thinking about your client's story, whatever the case is about, you need to ask yourself, When I tell this story, do I come across as the fairest guy in the courtroom 
And is it a story that will cause the jury to conclude that the fair result is defined for my client? There are two tips. First, admit and diffuse weaknesses. In doing so, you gain credibility because you are being fair and all you are doing is admitting facts that you would otherwise lose. Second, admitting and diffusing what you should, you can shift the focus from those facts and then focus the jury on the disputed facts that you believe you can prove and that will cause the jury to believe that your case is the fair case such that they want to find for you and your client. Mary Jo Barr of the law offices of Gilbert and Barr in San Diego has this to say. It's a story. It is not an argument. It's your story. It's your theme followed by the big facts, not all the relevant facts, but the big facts that support your theme. You're saying to them, here's what really happened. Folks value their own opinion, not yours. And at an opening in a case, you haven't earned the right to argue to them about what they should think and believe. Tell them a story. Tell them a story they can believe in. Tell them your story. And that is how we win. In January, Mary Jo did a webcast on witness preparation. The link for that, if you'd like to tune in, is in the show notes. Our last tip comes from Teo Liebman, who is a clinical professor at Hofstra Law in New York. And he says, Think about what the three most compelling facts are in your client's case. And especially think back to when you first heard your client's story, what were the three most compelling facts? And then structure your story around those. Good luck. Okay, so now you've got the story of your client's case all figured out. You've done your research, discovery and depositions are behind you, and the trial looms large in your future. So what's next? Well, overcoming writer's block. Here's Whitney Unteed of the law firm of Frieden Brown in Miami, where she has a civil litigation and appellate practice. How do you move past writer's block? Literally, I move. I get out of my head, get out of the chair, get away from the computer, break a sweat. You know, really, I think get out if you can. I, I find that taking time to let your energy flow and let your mind wander is the absolute best way to create new space in your brain to focus, to refocus and to rethink and to get creative and to get past whatever it is that's holding you back. Whitney is Anita's success story. She was working as a public service lawyer and qualified to apply for a program scholarship through our foundation. The training she received and Nita's public service mission itself resonated with her. And at the same time, she made a strong impression on the faculty members who taught at her program. It wasn't long before she went through teacher training herself and was appointed as next generation faculty. 2021 marks her second year on our board. We also think the world of Angela Porter, who gives us this tip based on her experience at the Los Angeles Public Defender's Office. And she says, 
Writer's block is something that visits me often when I'm preparing for trial. And the way I move past it is I take time and I leave the case completely alone. Sometimes when you've been involved in a case prepping and you know it front to back, developing your theme and theory and writing it out your opening and closing, uh, you can get blocked. So I close up the case file. I walk away from it. I do something completely unwork related. And what I find often is that after a while, the inspiration will come back to me and then I pick it back up. So my best way past writer's block is to simply take a break, walk away, leave the case completely alone until the inspiration comes naturally. Also calling in from California is the Honorable Carl Chamberlain of the California Court of Appeals. I think writer's block comes from worrying too much about how we're going to say something, word choice or order, details. So to get unblocked, we need to find a way to get out our thoughts without worrying about the words. One way is to just start writing on the topic, whatever your thoughts are, without caring about the order or word choice. Don't censor yourself. You can edit it later. No one's going to see it. Just write something down to get started. Or you can start by making a bare-bone list of points you want to include, or even an outline, and then one by one jot down your thoughts for each point. Or something I frequently do, put down your pen, step away from the keyboard, and start talking out loud about the subject, as if you're explaining it to somebody. Talking out loud gets our thoughts flowing, and then it'll be easier to start writing. So however you do it, get your thoughts out without worrying about the words. Jean Tanaka with Best, Best, and Krieger in Walnut Creek, California, has this recommendation to share. I think the problem with writer's block often is that the writer wants to do a perfect job when he or she is writing. And I think a, a good way, for me at least, to get around it is to just start scribbling whatever comes into your mind on the topic. In fact, the messier, the better because then you won't create expectations for yourself on having that perfect first draft. After you finish that scribbled mess of notes, go back and start cleaning it up, tightening it, and organizing it. For me, that works. Everybody has their own style. Thank you. And finally, a friend of the podcast, Ruben Gutman, who practices and teaches in D.C., has this tip to offer. How do you get past writer's block? You pretend you have only three sentences to say your piece. You write them down. You find that you have more to say, and so you write more. You realize that your block is indeed unblocked. Yet, you don't like the organization or what you have said. You rethink it. You move paragraphs around. You tweak phrases. You are even bold enough to throw out the draft and start over. But your juices are running, and you will be just fine. Ruben was my guest last summer, along with the Honorable Amy Hanley of Kansas, on the show's most popular episode to date, Remote Advocacy in Hearings. The link for that is in the show notes, and you can download it at your convenience. Now, along with J.C. Lohr, Ruben has a book in production here at NIDA called Pretrial Advocacy, and that is a topic that has long been on our wish list, and we are grateful that he and J.C. made it happen. The book will come out this summer. So what comes after overcoming your writer's block? Well, breaking up with your notes. 
You simply cannot go to court with your eyes glued to your notes. You need to speak naturally, make eye contact with your fact finders, whether judge or jury, show them who you are while you were telling them who your client is. You cannot do that if they know the top of your head better than the look in your eyes. So look up. And that's hard. Notes can be a security blanket and they're hard to give up when you're nervous and you have a lot at stake for your client. Let's hear what the Brain Trust has to say. The Honorable Mark Drummond is a familiar voice around Studio 71. He's a frequent guest here on the podcast and our webcasts. And if you've ever signed up for our one-on-one coaching, he's your coach. He called me from New York City and had this to say. I use a three-step process. I believe in the mind-body connection, so I first say it out loud while writing it down word for word as I say it. We say things in a different manner than we write, so say it as you write it. I then convert those sentences into bullet points, and I then take those bullet points and convert them into pictures and place them into what have some, some have called a memory palace. It is placing those pictures in a building that you know well or your own home, for example. The more compelling the pictures, the more you will remember. You then simply walk through the building or your own home, looking at the pictures that you placed in there, and you will be able to remember what you want to say. If you want to read more about this technique, pick up The Art of Memory or the book Moonwalking with Einstein. I would rather hit 95% of what I want to say without notes than hit 100% by a word-for-word wrote recitation. After all, I once heard of a judge who said to counsel who was reading word for word, counsel, if you just want to hand me your brief, that would be fine. I can read. I love that the judge mentioned the memory palace. I don't want to get too meta here, but his mention of the memory palace actually triggered a memory of my own, of the silence of the lambs of all things. I saw the movie when it first came out and then later read the novel by Thomas Harris that the movie was based on. He then wrote another book called Hannibal, which shed light on how Hannibal Lecter turned out to be such a monster. And in this book, Dr. Lecter talks about the memory palace as being a device that he used to sharpen and develop his own memory. And the technique that Hannibal Lecter describes is just the same as what Judge Drummond said. He said that you build your own memory palace by mentally placing yourself in a familiar building and then assigning things that you want to remember to each room within the building and also to the objects that you find in the rooms. So you can see the work product, so to speak, of Dr. Lecter's memory palace in one of the scenes of Silence of the Lambs, where they show this really detailed sketch of the Duomo and the skyline of Florence that Dr. Lecter did in prison, and he did it entirely from his memory, thanks to the memory palace. So it's a pretty cool concept, and if you're interested in learning more about it, please check the show notes for the links I've provided. Next up is Bill Hunt. He is a member of our board of trustees. He's a faculty member, an author, and he practices law in Massachusetts. What I do and recommend is you write your entire opening or closing uh, longhand on paper. Uh, just write it out the whole thing word for word the way you'd want to do it. 
read it over. Uh, then outline it. Read the outline over, and then outline it again, shortening the outline. And then continue that process until you've got the outline down to about one or two pages, and your entries uh, uh, for each line of notes are just a few words. It's not even necessarily a whole sentence. Uh, and, um, and then those are the notes that you use. You obviously can't read them uh, to people because, uh, because they're just reminders. And the idea is you then have to speak with knowledge uh, about your topic without having to read from your notes because reading from your notes doesn't avail you of anything. But the process of going through it, writing it down and boiling it down, reading it, boiling it down, reading it, boiling it down, makes you knowledgeable uh, because after all um, the purpose of notes is to remind you uh, of what you want to talk about it's not to feed you necessarily the language that you're going to use every step of the way also practicing law in massachusetts is dan rabinowitz he is with murphy and king in boston as Neil Sadaka once said, breaking up is hard to do, but don't think of it as breaking up. Think of it as changing your relationship from an exclusive one to a non-exclusive one. What do I mean by that? Learn how to use your notes in a different way. Condense things down to buzzwords or phrases. Some places you have to use your notes direct exam. You're not going to be able to memorize every single question and do a direct exam without notes. Same with cross-examination, although at some points during the cross-examination, you'll go off your notes because you're listening to the answer that the witness gives, and that's leading you to other questions. But when you want to give a closing argument, for example, uh, and not use your notes at all and never have to look down, I recommend the following. Number one, condense what you want to say onto a one-page outline by limiting what's written to those buzzwords or those phrases that you could glance at if you needed to, and you would be able to recall what you wanted to say about that subject that is condensed into that buzzword or that phrase. And then uh, you really, you just practice it out loud as many times as necessary to your spouse, to your siblings, to your friends, to anybody, or to yourself. But as many times as necessary, practice it out loud until you feel comfortable saying it without looking down and without looking at your notes and always, always, always make eye contact with who you're talking to, whether it's the judge or a jury, look people in the eye and persuade. This tip comes from trustee Joe Loveland. First, I take my notes and I move from the more general to the more specific. That is, I start with an outline and then I reduce that to just a few bullet points. Having done that, I'm able to remember much of the detail that was in the outline by reference to the bullet points. Secondly, I try and make my key points the jury's key points. In other words, through a graph or a chart or a PowerPoint slide, just one, I try and make those key bullet points something the jury will remember. Uh, by doing that, I have an outline that is going to be usable during the presentation will be remembered by the jury, and hopefully will craft the result in the case. Thank you very much. And next is the Honorable Richard Marcus, who I will let make his own fantastic introduction. 
This is Judge Richard Marcus, Nita's last surviving co-founder. I hereby overrule anyone's objection to using notes. Notes are good, not bad. They show the judge and the jury that the lawyer is prepared with an organized plan to cover the territory clearly, carefully, and completely. But notes are not a script which ties the lawyer's eyes and attention to paper sheets. The judge and the jury listen and believe more if you and they look at each other. A script denies spontaneity that conveys sincerity and confidence. So what are notes if they are scripts? They're a list of key words or short phrases that remind you what you want to cover in the order you want to cover it. Notes show reliability, so you don't need to hide them. Let them be fully visible, but don't wave them around with your hand gestures. We recently ran a weekly email campaign of Judge Marcus's trial tips, in which he shared this pithy tip, along with many others, over the course of 42 weeks. We will be re-releasing his tips as part of our anniversary celebration, so be sure to get on our mailing list and follow us on social for the announcement later this year. David Mann is based in Minnesota and is a communication specialist in his teachings for NIDA. His tip is a bit of a two-for-one. Let's listen. Hi, this is David Mann, story and messaging specialist uh, for lawyers. So there's a question about how to get off using notes. And I think it's really important to get off notes. And so here's what I would suggest doing. Don't try to memorize it and don't try to just immediately write uh, bullet points. Create a uh, written document that you go through and just sort of loosely memorize. So you look at one paragraph, you say it out loud, you say it out loud again, say it out loud again, like looking right at it. And then you try to repeat it in your own words and then write down a bullet point for what you repeat it. Then do that for paragraph two, paragraph three, and so forth all the way through. And before you know it, you've created a bullet point list and you've also practiced saying it out loud. So you can go and look at your bullet points and preserve most of what you actually wrote. J.C. Lohr is an award-winning Rutgers Law professor and Reuben Gutman's writing buddy on pretrial advocacy. Here's what he says about breaking up with your notes. So how do you break up with your notes as a trial lawyer? Well, the most important thing is to get rid of the idea that you have to be perfect or that you have to say things perfectly. Be confident that it's more important for you to connect to the jury and to the judge, those people that you're trying to persuade, and to connect with them by maintaining eye contact with them. Be confident that your interest in what the witness is saying, demonstrated by you maintaining eye contact with them, is way more important than you being buried in your notes. You see, getting rid of your notes and making eye contact and staying connected with the judge, with the jury, and with the witness shows that you care about them and that makes you more persuasive as a trial lawyer.
So you've devised the story of your client's case. You've made it through writer's block and you've practiced, practiced, practiced breaking up with your notes. Now it's time to craft your opening statement. Joining me here is Bob Burns with the Northwestern University School of Law. Most important thing about opening statement is to realize that it is about what the evidence will show, not what the evidence will be. So it's that complete God's eye story of the events that took place. God's eye because it includes uh, facts that only God could know, intents, beliefs, states of mind. There are only two reasons to include what the evidence will be. One, it's particularly strong. Uh, it's powerful evidence that is convincing. Second, part of your God's eye story is broadly implausible. It's unlikely. And so you want to include in the story the particular evidence that makes that unlikely event still believable as true. This tip is from Dan Coton of Tomasi Coton Kasserman in Illinois, and he is a new member of NIDA's Board of Trustees. What's the most important thing to know in crafting an opening statement? Well, quite simply, opening statements are the most important part of any jury trial. Research shows that most jurors make up their minds about a case based upon opening statements alone. That means that you'll likely win or lose your case at this very early stage of the trial. Now, anyone who teaches that opening statements are not intended to be persuasive is just dead wrong. So my trial tip is that essentially a good opening statement is really just a closing argument, but with the procedural and semantic safeguards in place to remind the jury that nothing has yet been proven. I cringe when I hear a lawyer preface every sentence with the evidence will show. That's distracting language, which I will only use when I'm about to say something that is so truly argumentative. That buffer line will usually avoid drawing an objection of any kind. There's so much more to say about opening statements, but looking at it as really a closing argument in sheep's clothing is a good way to start. Dan also wrote an excellent blog post on virtual jury trials, along with his colleague, Brian Balloon, for our blog. Please see the show notes for that link if you'd like to read it. The next tip comes from Frank Rothschild. He lives in Hawaii. Doesn't that sound fabulous? And he is a longtime faculty member at NIDA, as well as author of multiple NIDA case files, including the iconic Flinders v. Mismo and its companion criminal case file, State v. Jackson. And here is his tip. Aloha, Marcy. There's a line from one of the many great songs from the incomparable rocker Bob Seeger. That's my answer to the question. What is the most important thing to know about crafting your opening statement? What to leave in, what to leave out. There's always more to talk about than there is time. And given the short attention span of any jury and its ability to process new information that is mainly transmitted orally, you have to make hard decisions of what among the long list of topics you would like to bring to the jury's attention, you will actually mention, and which to jettison from your opening presentation. Once that's done, then you can figure out from the topics that remain 
where to start, where to end, and how to logically flow from one to the other. The song, by the way, in case you've been scratching your head and can't remember, is Against the Wind. Aloha. This next tip is from Jim Gailey. He is a faculty member with the practice in Miami, Florida. The most important thing about crafting an opening statement is to decide what your theme is. Um, When you're determining that, you want to make sure that the theme is a universal one that will resonate with your jury. Um, Even though opening statement is supposed to be confined to facts that you expect will be introduced at trial, the facts should be discussed in the context of your theme. Jurors like everyone else, are subject to a phenomenon known as confirmation bias. That is to say that jurors don't sit there like blank sheets of paper waiting for testimony or facts to be written on it for them to make a determination. Instead, jurors usually look for testimony to prove that he or she was correct and the conclusions that they drew after the opening statement. Consequently, when you're drafting your opening statement, you want to be able to use this phenomenon of confirmation bias to your advantage by discussing the facts in the context of a compelling and universal theme. Jules Epstein is the Director of Trial Advocacy at Temple Law. What is the most important thing to know about crafting your opening statement? It's really a combination of two points. The need to tell a story and what is called the curse of knowledge. Jurors respond best to processing information by receiving it in the form of a story. But the curse of knowledge means you know the story better than they do. And when you tell it, you may fill in gaps unconsciously. So to make your story effective, practice it with someone who knows nothing about the case and have that person tell it back to you. If they tell the story that was in your head, you have succeeded. If not, then you have to go back to the drawing board. You might know Jules from our series of white papers called Collective Wisdom, where he interviews various members of his trial advocacy listserv and shares their collective wisdom. And you can check that out in our show notes. Our last trial tip on opening statements comes from Salvador Mangia. He practices in Tacoma, Washington, and his tip includes a demonstration. The most important thing to remember when you are creating your opening statement, you are telling a story. You want your audience, the jury, to want to hear that story. You have about one minute, two minutes tops of the jury's undivided attention. Don't squander that time. She only lived to be with her infant son for seven days before she died. Her son will never know his mom. He will now grow up without his mother's touch, without her guidance, without her love. This should never have happened. 
Lori Smith should be alive today. Lori Smith would be alive today except for the carelessness, inattention, and neglect by Dr. Carr. Okay, remember, your introduction to your story to your opening statement has to be compelling. That, to me, is the most important part of the opening statement. Our last set of tips is all about how to take care of yourself during a long and arduous trial. Bob Blasco is a longtime NEDA faculty member who I got to know from his service at our Seattle Trial Skills Program. I live in Seattle, so that's how I know him. He is based in Alaska, which is not too far from me, and he had this to say. My tip is a physical exercise routine every day built into your daily trial preparation. For one long trial, I set up a heavy bag in the garage and box three rounds every morning. Find out what you enjoy, running yoga, whatever it is. Stick to it throughout the trial. This physical exercise keeps you not only physically well, but mentally alert and emotionally recharged. This tip comes from Cynthia Goodworks from the Goodworks Law Firm in Maryland. And does her law firm not sound like counsel you would want to hire? I think so. Here is her tip. The one thing I do to take care of myself is pack snacks in my briefcase so that I make sure that I have something to eat when I'm hungry. When I was younger in my practice, I wouldn't eat during trial. The older I got, I found I could no longer do that. Jonathan Brown is with North Carolina Prisoner Legal Services in Raleigh. He likes to take care of a different part of his body, his brain. When I'm in a long trial, usually a couple months capital trial, what I make sure when I do get home every evening, I actually spend 30 minutes just writing about it, get it all out of my system, and I write it and send an email to my friends and colleagues, but I make sure I have a humorous view of it um, that puts in weird references to sports, politics, classic literature, pop culture, and just makes it entertaining, relaxes me, and um, makes it in the next day. I want to figure out what I'm going to write about beforehand and on, just makes it a more a better way of just unwinding. And rounding out our trial tips for this episode is number 26. I gave you a bonus. And this comes from NIDA trustee Mike Ginsburg. He practices with Jones Day in Pittsburgh and works closely with Lawyers Without Borders to teach advocacy skills in emerging democracies in Africa. Such important and fascinating work. So here's his tip. Well, trials are hard on your health. Long days sitting in the courtroom is not healthy. Late nights preparing for the next day, not healthy. Quick and not necessarily healthy meals, particularly lunch when you're likely preparing for the afternoon. So when I'm in trial, I find myself needing to do something to counteract all that negativeness. So I get up early every morning and force myself to. I go to the gym or I go for a walk or for a run. I do it every day, first thing in the morning, sometimes as early as 5.30 or 6 o'clock in the morning. The exercise generates endorphins and gives me actually more energy, energy enough to get through the day and perhaps counter some of the ill effects of the unhealthy eating that's part of the trial process. But exercise also helps dissipate some of the nervous energy that comes with trials. In my view, if you're not nervous during trial, you're, not, you're doing something wrong. 
The key is to control your nerves and then channel your nervous energy into the hyper alertness, hyper alertness that you need when you're sitting at council table. I find that tiring myself out a bit uh, with some morning exercise helps me control my nerves and channel that nervous energy in a way that's productive. So those are our 26 trial tips. I hope you enjoyed them and got something out of them. And if you're a frequent listener of the podcast, you know that I always sign off with a signature question. And for the next few months, that question is imagining life after COVID. If you could go anywhere in the world, where would you go and what would you do? Mike Ginsburg. And the answer is given the pandemic and fact that my kids are spread all over the country that where I'd like to be right now is in my home with my kids and their spouses and my wife and be able to hug everybody without worry about getting sick as a result. Next is Tony Bacchino. He's a longtime faculty member and author and has held various leadership positions here at NIDA. His travel wish involves a wrinkle in time. Take a listen. I would go back into the 1980s to the hotel bar where the Nita, where Nita was putting up his uh, national faculty that year, and Ken Brown would be on the piano uh, with uh, Jim McElhaney in the wings, and Keith Roberts and Don Beskind and Jim Ferguson and Charles Beckton and Joe Bankoff and Ann Williams and Jim Carrigan and uh, Evelyn Cannon would all be sitting around singing songs that we really didn't know the words to, but probably had heard at some point, and making an effort at harmonizing. And then in the break in the music, we would sit around and do what most lawyers do and tell a bunch of lies. Andy Shepard teaches at Hofstra Law. He is the author of Allen v. Allen, which is a series of case files involving family law. He lives in New York City, and he says he wants to stay close to home. Here's why. I'm hopeful that we will have a reasonably normal post-COVID world soon, and where I would want to go and what I'd want to do is have my New York City back that I remember pre-COVID with its vibrant culture, with its great restaurants, and its wonderful people, and its tourists and visitors. Uh, I'm my second choice would be to go to Hawaii, which is one of my favorite places on earth, for a rest, some warm weather, and some multicultural diversity. Karen Lockwood is someone who is quite near and dear to our hearts because she's our former executive director. Here's where she would like to go and what she would like to do. If I could go anywhere in the world, it would be to New Zealand with at least four fly rods and matching tackle in my vest and good hiking boots on my feet. Oh, someday, maybe. And now I'm happy to welcome our current executive director and successor to Karen Lockwood, Wendy McCormack. Welcome to the podcast, Wendy. Thank you, Marcy, excited to be here. So in a COVID-free world, where would you go and what would you do? Well, as you know, we spend all our extra money on international travel. And so 2020 was very difficult uh, in, in that regard. We did save a lot of money, but our list of places is very long. Uh, it includes places like 
Croatia, Scotland, the Almalfi Coast, Portugal, Iceland. But the place we continue to come back to over and over as we have happy hour, my, my husband and I, is Ireland. We love Ireland. We've been there three times. We've been on a music tour. We've been on hiking adventures. Um, we love the pubs. We love the fireplaces with the peat um, bricks burning. And uh, we just, you can't get better than Ireland. Where would you go? Well, Wendy, you are, alas, after my own Irish heart, because that is exactly where I would go to. And since you and I have spoken about it so many times, um, after our own trips to Ireland and back, I'm actually not surprised that we have this overlap. So I chose Ireland because here in Seattle, we are in the midst of the winter rainy season. And typically, I am totally fine with the endless rain and cloud cover. But after almost a year of this pandemic life, being at home in Seattle definitely feels like house arrest. And so I'm thinking that if I'm gonna, it's going to be raining anyway, please let me be in Ireland. I love it. Yes, we've, we've definitely adopted the Irish coffee to make us feel like we're in Ireland uh, this year. That sounds cozy. Yes. Yeah. And if when we get back to Ireland, I, I'll definitely need a, a new Gore-Tex coat and some, some rain galoshes, but uh, we, we just can't wait to get back. I hear you. Well, thanks so much for coming on board and sharing that. So I hope that this episode has given you a lot of tips to think about or to apply to your practice immediately, but we'll also introduce you to a number of our faculty. These are the very judges, practitioners, and law professors who teach at our programs and write the books that we sell. You may have even used a NIDA case file in a trial advocacy class when you were in law school. If you figure that each person of this caliber has been practicing for at least a few decades, and that we have over 800 active faculty members, program directors, authors, and trustees, and NIDA itself has been around for 50 years, that really speaks to the depth and the richness of our experience in trial advocacy. Visit nita.org to take your litigation skills to a new level this year with courses on trial skills, deposition skills, mediation, writing and communication skills, and you can explore our one-on-one -on -one coaching opportunities. To hear more great trial tips, keep listening to May the Record Reflect on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Overcast or go to nita.org forward slash podcasts. And like I said, the next episode airing in March is going to have the next 25 of our 50 trial tips for 50 years. May the Record Reflect is a Nita Studio 71 production. Nita.org. Advocacy enhanced, mentorship reimagined. Welcome to the community.